uh, Father, you, you are life, and knowing you is life. Uh, we exist uh, apart from you uh, by your will, but we don't really live. Uh, thanks for Jesus. Thanks for your spirit. Thanks for atonement fully brought. Uh, thanks for your word and your promises. And Lord, would you fill us up with more of the life of your dear son this morning? And would you help us reflect back to you a little bit of the praise that is your due in Jesus name? Amen. Guys, I have a blog. I, I write on it sometimes infrequently, sometimes in groups, but I did a book review at AppliedHeart.com. Applied Heart comes from a verse out of Ecclesiastes. A book by Stephen Mansfield. And on the upside, Stephen Mansfield is a former pastor. He's a Christian author. He's a good writer. Uh, His forte is biographies. He's done political heavyweights historically as well as uh, Christians. And generally, I really like his books. Uh, This is one not so much for me. Uh, Choosing Donald Trump, and you probably can't read the subtitle there, uh, God, Anger, Hope, and Why Conservative Christians Supported Him. Uh, The problem with the book was uh, Mansfield was taking evangelical leadership around the country to task that they didn't do enough in his view of castigating, calling then-candidate Donald Trump uh, to a moral higher ground. And the castigation on his part was based on a number of assumptions, presuppositions. And if you didn't agree with the presuppositions, none of the rest mattered. And that was the the weakness of his book. He had a couple of other elements of it that were quite good. The the formative elements of Donald Trump's childhood, young adult years, was actually quite interesting. But it raised a number of questions about uh, what does it look like Um, and being responsible representatives of Christ on the earth, what does it look like to speak truth? And what does it look like to speak truth, this case specifically, truth to power? We're going to be talking about telling the truth this morning a little bit. And as we do, let's not assume that we are good at truth telling. Let's just, just, let's hold that lightly. Let's assume that we're not good at it so that we can think perhaps critically for our own habits, own habits and thoughts of mind. What does it look like to speak the truth to those in authority? Am I characterized by telling the truth in every area of life? So in the political arena, my place of employment, where I go to school, where I work, church, social media. Again, we might say to ourselves, of course I do, and I would just say hold that. Lightly, I'm not convinced that we, we do. Do I even know the truth? And, and as we're talking about truth this morning, we're talking about spiritual truth. Truth with a capital T. So friends, if we don't know Christ, if we don't know the person who is in Himself the embodiment of truth, it's impossible for us to know truth with a capital T. Do we know the truth? And do we know the truth in Christ? Do we know the truth in God's Word? We're going to look at the life of a person this morning whose key role really was telling the truth. As you'll see, this was the key role in his life. We're in the Heroes and Villains series again this morning. This is the 25th message. And heroes, we're looking at a hero this morning, heroes display something of Christ-like faithfulness. You know, Jesus is the Word of God. And Samuel, the person we're looking at this morning, what you'll see is that the 
the model of his life was hearing God's word. He became an intermediary. God spoke to Samuel and then he, he faithfully communed what God had said to him to those to whom God meant to speak. Think of Jesus as the word. Samuel receives the word of God and he passes it on faithfully to others for some historic backdrop. And you remember one of the things we want to do th from the series is have a large overarching view of what's going on in the scriptures broadly. Uh, Samuel's going to come up at the end of the judges. So we'll put his life around 1100 B.C. He's not called a judge, but he functions as a judge. And his life, he, he, he occupies a pretty narrow geographic area. I guess the map's almost too small to see, but Shiloh there in the middle just above Jerusalem is where the ark was and the tabernacle was located in his day. So that's where he's going to be raised, as you'll see in the story in a minute. And then when he grows up and he's judging Israel, he does this little circuit, uh, kind of like a Methodist preacher, Bethel, Mizpah, Gilgal's a guest somewhere around the Jordan River Valley, but that's where he's occupied geographically in Israel. Uh, he's a key leader uh, for this reason. He is the link in the chain between the period of the judges and the period of the kings. So you remember, he's coming out of the period of the judges. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes. There's no king in Israel in those days. But then he's the one that introduces the kings to Israel. First Saul, of course, and then David. Now, he's a lot like John the Baptist in this sense. Think of John the Baptist in the Gospels. Uh, his birth is to a woman who couldn't have children. It was God's provision and answer to prayer. John the Baptist was the link between the Old Testament and the New Testament. He's the last of the Old Testament prophets who brings in the next element of God's dispensation or covenant on earth, Jesus the Messiah who introduces the New Covenant era. He was like Old Testament prophets, but Jesus says He's like them, but He's, he's more important. He's the, the supreme of all of them. Think of Samuel. Samuel's birth was an answer to prayer. He's a prophet. He links the period of the judges and the period of the kings. He introduces and anoints the first two of Israel's kings. He's spoken of, and I won't get into this this morning, in the language of the judges, but he's clearly more than a judge. He's not just a judge like the others in the period of the judges. The main point we want to take away from this morning is this. Samuel is faithful in a number of ways, but the most prominent is his faithfulness to speak the truth of God's Word. That's what you'll see over and over and over again. Back to the book for a second. The whole, the whole notion of Mansfield's book, uh, his castigation of evangelicals related to candidate Trump, was speaking truth to power. Speaking truth to power. That was the concept. My own take of that concept today is that it's often used really as a personal conceit. That we elevate our own importance by imagining we're brave enough and informed enough to speak truth to power. I'm convinced for most of us, entertaining that concept, we're really insulated and we're opinionated. It, we, we don't speak truth to power well. Samuel shows us what it looks like to be faithful with God's Word to those in positions of authority. Not just them, but certainly particularly them. So in our own imitation of Christ-like faithfulness, and remember, guys, all the people we look at on the positives, the heroes of faith, they're people just like us. They're sinners that needed a Savior. They have feet of clay. Look closely enough and you see their sin just like we look at any of ourselves. 
remember, each one of these people, they're just a lens to see something of Christ. And so when we see something of Christ, we don't say, I'm going to be a better person. I'm going to be a more religious person. I'm going to vow to do better. We say that I want the life of Christ that's in me through faith and adoption and rebirth. I want the life of Christ to be more fully revealed in me. That's what we're talking about. It's not religious practices. It's not vows to do better. Okay, so remember that. Um, this comes up to, um, there was a story, made evangelical news at least, there's a Christian artist, and, and if you're aware of it, you'll know who I'm talking about, I'm not going to go into specific, Christian artist, very popular, very successful in the evangelical world, and uh, they were making it crossover into the larger markets and more money and, and higher name recognition, etc. And they did an interview online, and they were asked in the interview, what do you think of homosexual behavior? What do you think of same-sex marriage? And the person said, you know, I'm not sure what to say about that. Now, it's an evangelical church, a person, writing songs that this church has sung. But they don't know what to say about behavior that Scripture is very clear on. And they're, they're, the name recognition continues to rise. But here's a person, and, and guys, I want to be careful about not coming across too critical here. I am critical on one hand. But this is a young person who probably has inadequately grounded themselves spiritually and in the Scriptures. And there was this point of pressure. And I feel pressured. Do I, do I say the truth or not? And this person took a bow and chose not to. They, they either didn't know the Scripture well enough or they simply felt the pressure in the moment and they caved. And that's what we don't want to do. So we're talking about telling the truth Today. So what we'll see in the life of Samuel is that God speaks to him, speaks the truth, and Samuel speaks the truth to others. So if you're in your Bible, we're going to start in 1 Samuel 3. It's page 227 if you use a pew Bible. Samuel, his name means heard of God, Shem and El. And just to set this up, you remember he's the answer to prayer. This lovely lady named Hannah, she's one of two wives. Her husband is from the priestly line. They live in central Israel. And uh, her other spouse, the other gal, she has lots of children and Hannah doesn't. And poor Hannah, she's at the tent, the tabernacle there in Shiloh and she prays. She is desperate for a child. And she prays. And God answers her prayer. And she gets this little boy, this little Samuel. And she tells the Lord, she says, Lord, if you'll give me a boy, I'll give him back. He'll serve you all the days of his life. God does. And she's faithful. So he's weaned. See, he's still a little fellow, right? He's a little guy, but he's weaned. And she takes him back, true to her word, and she deposits him. This would be hard for a mom, wouldn't it? To take your little boy and deposit him with a bunch of guys. Eli the high priest and his ungodly sons at the tabernacle compound. That's what she does. Before the passage that we start with here, God had already sent a prophet to Eli the high priest. And he basically said, your line is going down because you preferred your sons to me. Your sons have blasphemed my name. You've done nothing about it. Your line is not going to succeed. So Eli's already heard this message. So where we pick up this, this morning, it's night, and they've been laying down for bed trying to go to sleep, and Samuel keeps thinking that Eli's calling him, and it's not Eli. And finally Eli says, hey, next time that voice calls you, say, speak, Lord, your servant's listening. And this is where we pick up. 
Samuel says, speak, your servant hears. And the Lord said to Samuel, behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. This is a big deal. What I'm telling you is a big deal. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from that former prophet from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And brief point, the, the tabernacle is a tent. It's not a structure with doors. There's a thought that there's a secondary barrier or building that's been put up around the tabernacle. So there are doors to open. And the text says Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. Now, put this in perspective. We don't know how old he is now, but he's little. He's a young guy. He's a boy. And God's just told this boy to go tell his surrogate father, the high priest of Israel, the guy that he looks up to, his mentor, and tell him that his line is going down. That God is judging him and his household and there's nothing he can do about it. And that's this little boy's first mission. That would be a little intimidating, wouldn't it? There's a lot on the line. He's wondering, what do I do? But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son, and this is just like the Lord, it's parallel. And he says, here I am. Eli said, what was it that he told you? Don't hide it from me. (laughs) Eli has some notion, right? That this is from the Lord and it might not be good towards him. And he's already heard a prophecy about what God intends to do to his household. So he says, don't hide it from me. May God do so to you and more if you hide anything from me of all that He told you. So, verse 18, So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And Eli said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. So here's the pattern. God speaks to Samuel. Samuel hears God's Word. He listens. Here am I. I'm listening. And then he repeats what God said to the person or to the audience. God said, this message is to go to. And what you find is this is, his, this is his life. He's a boy here. That's what he does for the rest of his life. God speaks. He listens. And then he repeats what God has said. He tells the truth to the audience God intended him to speak to. It's the pattern of his life. And we'll have a few examples of this. When uh, in 1 Samuel 7, you can skip through if you've got your Bible open. This is 7 verses 3 and 4. When Israel... They're repenting, which is a good thing, but they're still a nation filled with idols and idolatry. And so Samuel reproves them for God. And he says, if you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth, the the female idols from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve Him only and He'll deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people did. So you got this first instance in chapter 7 in which The people are doing something that's noble on one hand, but inadequate. And so Samuel, remember he'd still be young here, he reproves them. He says, this is good, but it's not enough. He speaks for God. You remember God said to Eli, people have blasphemed me and you've not confronted them. Well, Samuel heard that. And so Samuel's telling people who on one hand are doing the right thing, but inadequately, he says, you're not doing right enough. You need to do this as well. 
when Israel demands a king, Samuel's faithful in warning them what a king would cost them. Sometimes we get what we want, don't we? And then we realize this isn't what I thought it would be. So that's what Israel is going to find out. So this is from 1 Samuel 8, verses 9 and 10. God says to Samuel, Obey their voice. So the people have told Samuel, you've, you've been good. You're great. Your son's not so much. He's older at this point. You're great. Your son's not so much. We want you to give us a king so that when you're gone, we've got a king to rule us and go out. Somebody we can see and look at will be our leader. And God says, Obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So God tells Samuel, you do this and tell them, Verse 10, so Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. You see the pattern again? God speaks, Samuel listens, and then whatever God said, that's what he spews out to that audience, that intended audience. He's also faithful in speaking truth to power. Uh, uh, Saul is one of the most conflicted characters in all the Bible. If you read his story, on one hand he starts out, he sounds like this humble guy. But then you realize, but he's not. He sounds obedient on one hand, but it's half-hearted at best. He's not a guy to be trusted, in other words. And later, not at this point, but later this is a guy who will throw spears at his own son, who will require the execution of the priest that would have been guys just like Samuel. Uh, this is a bloody guy. This is a guy that's not, not worthy of trust. So Samuel goes up to the person in power who could have him executed, when King Saul had been ordered by God to wipe out the Amalekites and King Agag and all that they had, put under the ban just like at Jericho, and Saul doesn't. And Samuel comes down to join him and there's sheep bleeding and he sees people coming with goods, obviously the booty of war. And he's like, what in the world is going on? And Saul says, oh, I've obeyed the Lord. And Samuel says, no, you haven't. And so Samuel reproves King Saul he said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. And remember, he's talking to the king. Rebellion, your rebellion, is like the sin of divination. Now, Isn't it interesting here? He says, your rebellion is like witchcraft. And what will Saul do at the end of his life? He'll go to a witch. And presumption is as iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has rejected you from being king. Samuel's putting himself in a hazardous place here. He basically says, you're going down to the guy who could cut his head off and, and will execute all kinds of other people later in his life. He was speaking truth to power in the ways that really were meaningful because God had spoken to him and he spoke faithfully to Saul. And he told the truth. That was really speaking truth to power. And last, I don't have an image for this. There was a great one online, but I thought it might scare kids, so I didn't include that one. Samuel dies. He dies. And guys, when you read this in the text, this is from 1 Samuel 28, the narrative is a straight telling. I assume that what the narrative says is what actually happened and that Samuel really came back from the dead as a spirit. So Saul knows he faces the Philistines the next day in battle, and he's terrified. So he goes up to this witch at Endor. 
And he says, I want you to call up Samuel who has died. Call him up from the grave. And this gal's frightened because something comes up. And the description is of Samuel. Now, the shade tells the truth. The shade predicts accurately the future of what's going to happen the next day. And Saul says, that's Samuel. And he says, what do I do? God won't speak to me. I don't know what to do. You tell me what to do. And Samuel says, if God won't speak to you, why would you come to me? If God would speak to me, I'd be glad to tell you anything he says. But if God won't speak to you, I can't help you. And he says, this is 1 Samuel 28, verses 15 through 19. Uh, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your son shall be with me, and the Lord will give the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. It's exactly what happens, of course. Even in death, if you will, this after-death appearance, Samuel continues to speak absolutely the truth to the person who's inquiring, even from beyond the grave. I'll bring this, this appearance up later too at the end. So you got this pattern of life Samuel tells the truth. Now he's in relationship with God, so we're talking truth with a capital T, truth that matters ultimately, eternally. He's in relationship with God. Samuel tells the truth if it's a mundane issue or if it's a profoundly important issue. He tells the truth when it's time to celebrate a new king or the passing of a king, installing another one. When speaking to someone older than himself, think of Eli, or to someone more powerful, think of King Saul. Whatever's going on, you could count on this guy. You could count on one thing for sure. If you heard from Samuel, you were going to hear the truth. Now, no one, and, and back to the fact that heroes of faith are always lenses by which we gaze on Christ ultimately. No one has ever been more faithful than Jesus, and no one could be, to tell the truth, right? That the Father speaks, the Son takes God's Word and speaks it to anyone He's interacting with. And think of this. Jesus calls sinners to repentance. He, holds, he tells captives there's freedom. He speaks truth to power. Think of a cleansing of the temple, the rebukes. Remember, He rebukes no one as severely and regularly as religious leaders. That's a good word for the church today, religious leaders. And political powers. Think of His interaction with Pilate before His crucifixion. In our own transformation into the image of Christ, how are we doing at telling the truth? How are we doing at being truth tellers? And, and work through a little bit of this with me at a personal level. The first thing is, do I know the truth? Truth with a capital T. And this really gets down to, do I know the person who said of himself he is truth? He's truth embodied. That apart from Christ, truth doesn't exist. He's reality. He's ultimate reality. He is truth in Himself. Anything He says is true. And it's in the relationship I have with Him that I am able to perceive truth. Guys, when we talk about why doesn't someone see something, uh, political things, thinking of a Sunday school discussion today, or we had a home group discussion about why doesn't this Jewish person see Christ, there's spiritual blindness, right? Spiritual truth is apprehended spiritually. It's not about facts and figures. If we're connected to Christ, to His truth, we have the ability to perceive truth, spiritual truth, ultimate reality. If we don't, we don't have that ability. It doesn't exist. Christ is the truth. To be connected to Him vitally by faith is to be able to comprehend truth. 
Beyond that, though, if I'm a Christian, if I say I know I die, I'm going to heaven to be with Jesus because He died for my sins, my sins are covered, I'm a child of God. Do I know God's Word? Do I know the truth that God's given me? All God's Word is true. Absolutely. But guys, if I get saved and I have the life of the One who is truth in Himself in me and I don't know His Word, I remain a spiritual infant or a spiritual toddler. If I don't know God's Word, I don't have the ability to speak truth to my own soul, much less to someone else. You know, people, people have given their lives for the Bible. I've probably got at least two dozen Bibles at my house. I'll bet you guys have Bibles at home that are covered in dust. Some you use, some you don't. We have the privilege, like no generation in the world, I'll bet I've got 20 versions of the Bible in my pocket on my smartphone. I've got Greek and Hebrew on my smartphone. We have no excuse today for not immersing ourselves in the truth of God's Word. His Word enlightens our soul. It transforms us. How can we speak truth to ourselves if we don't know it? How can we speak truth to others if we don't know it? God has spoken. Remember that Samuel listens to what God says and he takes that message and and he shares that message honestly and fully with whoever it was intended for. If you meet someone who doesn't know Christ, do you know what God says to them? If you meet another Christian who's struggling with some particular sin, do you know what God has said about that so that you can say the same thing to them? And always in grace and always thoughtfully and prayerfully, of course. But do we know the truth? Do I tell myself the truth? And guys, this goes two ways. Negatively. We all generally, by our sinful nature, we want to think more highly of ourselves than we should. And we want others to think more highly of us than they should. Do we tell ourselves the truth about our own sins and our own faults? You know, if I interact with someone else and and I realize, well, they didn't take that well and I do the same thing with someone else and someone else, I would start getting the notion, you know, everybody's, no one's listening to Mike. Maybe there's an issue there. Maybe it's not them. Maybe it's me. Are we honest with ourselves about the truth of what we're doing, why we're doing things, our own sins, our own faults, our own responsibilities. One, that's one thing. Are we honest with ourselves? Because I think generally we're lighter on ourselves than we should be negatively. But positively also this. There's lots of Christians that struggle in one way or another. Even though they know they're saved and going to heaven, they still have this sense of unworthiness or they still feel compromised. I'm not all that I should be. And what they need to hear is what God has also said in His Word, that you are God's son or daughter, that He delights in you, that you're fully accepted in the Beloved, that you're an heir with Christ, that you'll rule over angels in the future cosmos, that you're all that in Christ. Others of us need to hear that. But you see, it's all from Scripture. God has spoken. Do we know what He said? Are we honest with ourselves about what's true of us? Either sinfully in our deficiency or gloriously in Christ's presence in us and our presence in Christ. How about am I a truth teller in the mundane areas of life? So guys, if your wife comes home and she says, how do you like my new hairdo or my new hair color or my new dress? Do you tell a white lie? Do you really think, oh man, that is not working for you, honey. But you say, oh, it's lovely. It's great. Or ladies, if your husband says, do I look like I'm gaining weight? And of course he has. And you say, oh no. You know? <laughs> when nothing's at stake, or relatively nothing is, is at stake, 
Do we make white lies because we don't want to tell the truth? Someone invites me, somebody wants me to do something, and I don't want to. <laughs> I was at a conference years ago, it was kind of strange, with a friend. The friend goes up to a speaker after he'd spoken. The guy's just standing there in the hall having a cup of coffee. And he says, hey, do you just have a couple of minutes so I could ask you a question? And the guy just looks at him and he says, no. <laughs> and he just goes back to sipping his coffee. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. But uh, on the ups, and I don't know what was going on with him. But on the upside, it's like clearly he, he, didn't, need to make a, he didn't need to make any sort of, he just said no. And that was it. It's the beginning and the end. No. No white lies. And then this, when things do matter, the reason I bring up the mundane, guys, if we don't tell the truth when there's little at stake, what do you think the likelihood is we will when the stakes have risen? Probably not very good. Do we tell the truth when there's risk involved? And again, I don't want to minimize this because for some of us, there is risk involved and there's alienation and there might be job job prospects or it could be any kind of things up for grabs do we tell the truth in the mundane do we tell the truth when there's something at stake i want to bring this up just briefly because it's part of his life this is sort of switching gears here when samuel is turning the reins of the kingdom over to king saul he sort of does this house cleaning kind of like a steward showing the books to his employer and he basically says this is first samuel 12 Verses 1 through 5, he says to Israel, Hey, testify against me. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey? Who have I defrauded? Who has been able to bribe me? He says, Point out anything, monetary, personal gain, point out anything I've done wrong. And they say, Nope, you're absolutely blameless. You're above reproach. That's a big deal. You know, we should be able to trust our leaders with what we entrust to their care. So, Money's not the end of the day, guys. Money's not the most important thing, but it represents an awful lot, doesn't it? The ability to do work. It represents our labors to gather that wealth, for sure. But Samuel could say, I have never taken advantage of anyone through my position. And remember, we didn't mention this earlier, but Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, if you read their story, they're blaspheming God in part by taking elements of sacrifices that didn't belong to them. Or didn't belong to them in that way. They were abusing their authority to get what they wanted. And Samuel saw that. And he knew God judged Eli for that. And Samuel says, my hands are clean. You can look as long and deep and broad as you want about my administration. I haven't made any unfair, unethical use of anyone or anything. I'm above reproach. That's, that's a thing we should all aim for no matter what we're doing. The places I want to wind down, and for me, this is a close second, frankly, to Samuel telling the truth. Um, that's the epitome of his life. I think this is a close second. It's uh, being faithful to others, and there's two ways you'll see this. One is to pray for others, and the other is simple, simply in a kind of loyalty. Uh, back in 1 Samuel 7 again, when Israel wanted to return to the Lord but, but was half-hearted, listen to what Samuel said in part, Verse 5, he said, okay, gather Israel at Mizpah. We'll, we'll get together. We'll have a holy convocation. We'll meet with the Lord. And he said, and I will pray to the Lord for you. I'll be your intermediary. I will go before you. I'll represent you to the Lord. You've been unfaithful. You want to return. That's great. We'll gather together and I'll pray for you. 
I'll be the guy that goes before God for you. I will pray for you. This is one of the things I've said repeatedly, but to hear someone say, I've prayed for you past tense is one of the most glorious things I can ever hear. I'm not in it on my own. That someone knows what I'm facing or challenges or whatever, and they just say, I prayed for you. <sighs> That's great. Thank you. Better than that one, this is 1 Samuel 12, and this is just a great, great passage. The people have asked for the king, and guys, their desire, the scripture's clear, it's a wicked desire, it's an evil desire because they're rejecting God. Samuel talks to God about this. He's like, Lord, they're asking for a king. And God says to Samuel, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. They want a human leader they can look to instead of Yahweh Himself. Yahweh who led them out of Egypt, through the wilderness, into the land of promise, conquered giants, conquered walled cities, and they're still looking for some guy. Now we know in God's sovereign plans, we know from back in Genesis, that kings were going to come from the tribe of Judah. God said they would. But the expression of the desire for the kings here was wicked and evil. But listen to this. This is starting at verse 19, 1 Samuel 12. The people say to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die for we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. So Samuel rep replies and in part he says, hey, don't turn aside from following the Lord Serve Him with all your heart. Don't turn aside after empty things that can't profit. And listen to this. For the Lord will not forsake His people for His great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for Himself. He says God's going to remain true to you, not because you deserve it, but because He's true to His name. He's true to Himself. Verse 23, Moreover, as for me, far be it from me. And I love the language here. I wouldn't even think about it. Far be it from me, he says, that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. I could never stop praying for you, he says. And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord. Serve Him faithfully with all your heart. Closing with this, consider what great things He has done for you. I love that. Samuel says to the nation, God will be faithful to you because God's faithful to Himself. He says, I will be faithful to you to pray because I'm being faithful to myself and to God. He says, it would be a sin for me not to pray for you. Whether you deserve it or not, whether, whether you've lived in a way that engenders my support or not, he says, I couldn't stop praying for you. Not because you're worthy, but because that, that's the faithfulness God requires of me. I'm going to remain faithful and I'm going to pray for you. You think about Jesus, this is striking to me too. Uh, Luke twenty-two thirty-two, Last Supper, and Jesus, right? He knows everything that's coming. And Peter assures Jesus, Lord, no matter what happens, I'm your man. You can count on me, I'll be with you, even to death. And Jesus says in Luke's Gospel, He says, uh, Pete, you're going to die, you know me three times, and it's okay. And He says this, He says, I've prayed for you. I've prayed for you. You're going to fail. Don't languish in that. He says, I've prayed for you. You're going to be restored. And you'll need to get back up on your spiritual feet. And you'll need to encourage your brothers, your fellow disciples, because they're going to blow it too. You get to John 17, the high priestly prayer. Jesus knows everything that's coming. But you read that prayer in John 17. He knows all the guys He's praying for in that moment. They're all going to 
run away from him that night. They'll all forsake him. But you read that prayer, you wouldn't know there's any alienation, no disappointment, nothing like that. This is one of the things that's staggering for me. If someone says Jesus died for your sins and you say, man, that's a good thing, that's good. And I'm living well in the moment and so I feel good about that. But to know that God knows every future sin you'll ever sin and the grace He'll give you in the moment anyway, that's staggering. Do you know what I mean? So I'm, I'm doing well, I'm walking with the Lord and the Lord's good and I'm good and life's good. And then the bottom drops out. Whatever my thought life, my, what I say, what I do. When God was treating me good in that time of happy fellowship, He knew what I would do. And He loved me in the moment anyway. And prayer is like that. The prayer that you see here in examples in Samuel and in Jesus, it's in the face of failure. It's in the face of the failure of the one they're praying for. They're not praying for them because they're doing a great job. They're praying for them when they've blown it. That's the kind of prayer support I'm looking for. Mike blew it again. Okay, we better pray for him. Pray for me. <laughs> John said, 1 John 2, Jesus prays for us today. We've got an intercessor in heaven, right? We sin, John says, Kent's message, his series. We say we don't sin, we're lying. Of course we sin. But we confess our sin and we've got an advocate. We've got a Samuel. We've got a better than Samuel. We've got a Jesus. Our advocate in heaven interceding for us when we blow it. Samuel was praying for these guys, guys, because they needed it. We need to pray for each other when we blow it. Let me ask you a couple questions. Are we praying for others? And primarily, not only, I'm not thinking primarily about the horizontal. I'm thinking of the vertical because that's the relationship Jesus has to us and Samuel had to the nation. If you're a parent, are you praying for your kids? And I mean, are you praying for your kids every day? And are you praying that they come to faith and that they come to faith early and that they love the Lord and that they serve the Lord? Are you doing that from the womb forward? Are you praying for their future spouses? Are you committing your kids to the Lord in prayer? I can think of almost no more important thing other than to give them Christ, give them God's Word and Christ. But are you praying for them? Are you praying for your kids? If you lead a home group or if you're a worship group leader, let me put you on the spot. Are you praying for those in your home group and your worship group? Guys, if you are a leader in Lion Lamb Church, you've signed a document that says what you'll do. You've written your name on a document. You've said you'll be in the Scriptures daily, you'll pray daily, and you will pray for those under your charge. That's a big deal. Isn't it nice to know that somebody is praying for you? If you're in a group, you should be prayed for. Are we praying? Elders as shepherds in the church. If Lion and Lamb is your church home and we know it, one of the elders is responsible to know what's going on in your life and to pray for you. Now, if Lion and Lamb is your home and you don't know that you have an elder that's praying for you, you let us know. So we'll make sure we know this is your church home and we'll make sure somebody's aware of that and praying for you. Are we praying? Loyalty. Here's the other one. Uh, the last one. We're closing on this. Uh, one of the things I love about Samuel, especially in our day, guys, in the days of being unfriended, where loyalty is, you just you don't count on loyalty from anyone in the church or, or otherwise. Listen to this. And the thing that's striking to me is because of to whom the loyalty is displayed. 
1 Samuel 15.10, the word of the Lord came to Samuel. God says, I regret that I made Saul king. He has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was happy and he rejoiced. No. Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. Now hold your thought on this for just a second. Verse 35, Samuel didn't see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul. And last, 1 Samuel 16.1, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul? Now just think about this for just a second. You and I read Saul. We know at the end of the day, he's a double-minded creep. You, you don't trust him, etc., etc. Samuel's got skin in the game in this guy's life. Samuel anointed him king. When Saul said, I'm nobody, why would you even talk to me? Samuel says, nope, because you're the guy. He's got skin in the game. Samuel wanted Saul to succeed. Samuel was not happy to, to see and to know and to hear that Saul was going to fail miserably and that God was taking him down. He's grieved. He's sad. He is not rejoicing. You know, the next king, and this was all, of course, God, part of God's sovereign plan and will. We'll talk about that later in Saul's life. But how do you and I respond when you hear a church leader has fallen? Is there a sense of delight or glee? I knew. I knew they were that kind of a person. It was just a matter of time. Do you know what I mean? When we're aware of someone who has some level of prestige or honor or they have a name and they fall, what's our sense? And we have different levels of relationship. I'm, I'm not, it's not always the same. But Samuel was grieved over Saul's failure. It wasn't a point of rejoicing. He grieved over it. He had a kind of commitment to Saul that is exemplary. It's the kind of commitment we would want folks to have for us. Uh, close with this. Back to the point that Samuel's a lens to see Christ. And, and what we want to do, personal transformation for you and me, is not being a better person. It's not being religious. It's the life of Christ through rebirth growing within me. Samuel is unique though in some ways. And one of them is this. There are elements of his life that are clearly intentional on God's part to help us to see Christ. So on one hand, you say Samuel's like John the Baptist. He straddles these two ages, these two periods. He goes from one to the other, and he is, but he's more like Christ than John the Baptist. And these are just some of the elements of his story. Jesus and Samuel are both born to women who couldn't have children, but after their birth, first boy born, both mothers have several more children. They both received God's Word when it was rare. 1 Samuel 3.1 we didn't read, but it says the Word of God in those days was rare. Jesus' arrival on the scene is after 400 years of silence from the Old Testament book of Malachi. They both spent significant time at the tabernacle or temple in their youth. 1 Samuel 3.1, these are on your study sheet in Luke 2. By the way, the point four, the language in 1 Samuel 2.26 and Luke 2.52 is almost identical. You couldn't miss it. If you've read one and you read the other later, you'll know, I just heard that. They grew in favor with God and men. They were both godly in contrast to the high priest and the priesthood of their day, Eli and Caiaphas. They were both rejected in favor of a moral inferior. Samuel was rejected for King Saul. This says Barnabas. Sorry, that's a typo. I meant to be Barabbas, of course. Uh, Barabbas was chosen over Jesus. The Prince of Life was 
was not adequate for a murderer. They were both faithful to pray for those who were failing. They were both faithful to speak the truth to whomever it was due. And they both made, this is back to that one point, they both made appearances after death to people that they had had a relationship with before. I think all of these are just, they make us aware again, it's not just about Samuel. Samuel's a lens to see the Lord. Well, guys, if you would, stand up and let's read back as the worship team comes up. This is back from, from 1 Samuel 12. And again, I just I love the language, love the passage. Let's recite this together. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you and will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things He has done for you.